You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a special guest, Jimo Wong. He spent 15 years plus working at Nike, Jordan, and design roles, then moved on to Ivy Park, Aritzia, and now has his own creative consultancy, House Studios. He's also creating his own apparel brand, Volley Club, and has a bunch of exciting projects that he's working on at the moment. Jimo, thanks so much for being here, man. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Now, maybe I'm thinking like, you know, you've worked a lot across fashion, footwear, obviously a lot of different companies. Where does it all like begin, I guess, from like a professional perspective? Like, I I think if I'm not mistaken, was Nike your first job, like in the sort of like, you know, professional world? And how did that come about? I mean, obviously, Nike is a very sexy, attractive company and working in design. Just tell me, like, what's how did you get into that space? It was always my dream. Once I got into school, I guess, I went to school at Artists of Chicago, Midwest boy, small town boy. And it was always my dream coming out of college to join Nike. Didn't work out. I sent portfolios, actually, these kind of rough, handmade, hand-drawn portfolios to ACG team and Adidas. I think I still have them. Damn. Didn't get any, didn't get interns, didn't get a job. Went to New York. That was my first professional kind of career uh, kickoff. And started with this, this small Missy brand called Michael Simon that did kind of granny sweaters for, 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 for moms and grandmas that were, were sold at Nordstrom's as soon as you walk in, kind of private label stuff. I got my foot in the door and it took me to New York and it's kickstarted my career in the apparel space. I know that wasn't for me, so I, I went directly to the kind of like the streetwear brands, first one being Nietzsche, then going to Fat Farm, then Sean John, then, then Gerbeau. Often, kind of like the streetwear, menswear world. And in the meantime, I was always keeping in touch with the recruiter, Betsy Parker at Nike. Um, she she finally gave me an opportunity, and I didn't look back. I took the first plane out. Quick question on that. I mean, obviously, Nike is you know one of the best, if not arguably one of the best places for someone who's interested in footwear and apparel to work. But I also think like you know those streetwear companies you're talking about, like Sean John. Maybe at the time they were as sexy or as cool, or obviously maybe would you have more of an impact there because it was a smaller company? Like what what was the contrast with a Nike in terms of its appeal for you as a as a designer versus like I I would imagine a streetwear brand is even more kind of like exciting from your freedom as a designer, no? Yeah. Well, Nike was just had this, you know, it was before social media. So you just didn't know it. You just knew Nike was the Mecca. Uh, for any designer footwear and or apparel. I was apparel at the time. It was in Oregon, never visited Oregon. I just knew it had this kind of allure, this presence about it, and specifically around this brand that I grew up with, particularly uh, Jordan. So I just, it just, and growing up as a, as a Bulls fan, it just, it was a brand that 
I had to get to. I just put it out in the world. I put it out in the universe. The, it was a brand that I had to get to. Um, in terms of creative freedom, I have just as much there as I did working for all these streetwear brands at the time. I was pretty lucky uh, that I had that had the ability and I was fortunate enough to have great people around me to do so. Could you walk me through like maybe your Nike career and the stuff that you're most proud of and, you know, all the, some stories about your, your time there? Oof, there's a lot. I, I, I really met some amazing people, some amazing teammates that enabled me to get my ideas off. And that's really all it comes down to. You can be as creative as you want, as thought-provoking as you want. If you don't have the right team members to uh, help you get those ideas across, those ideas don't matter. So everyone from like uh, Frank Cook to Jeff Atienza, Brian Mitchell, those guys really helped me. Andreas Harlow, uh, get my ideas off the ground. David Creech, you're on, I could go on. You're on white, but the, those are some key people in my career to, that really helped me. What was like your proudest moment or accomplishment from your time there? In terms of projects, there's a lot. Uh, you could say Christian Dior, Jordan, Supreme Jordan that were just groundbreaking at the time. I would say if I had to pick one, it was one of my last ones. It was 2020 NBA All-Star in Chicago. For numerous reasons, it was Chicago. It was a city that I grew up in. Virgil was a part of it. Some um, OGs, Chicago OGs were part of it. And some up-and-comers in Chicago that are huge now were part of it. So I was able to, to and it was my ideal from, from the jump. So I was able to create this project around footwear, apparel, men's, women's, all in a city and moment that I'll never forget. I guess in your role at the time, like how many, I mean, I'm just really fascinated by like the process, right? Because I think about Nike as obviously this like massive company and from the outside, it can seem kind of complicated and there's like a lot of different teams, tens of thousands of employees like around the world. Like what what is the kind of like design creative process where from the beginning to like the inception of an idea, whether we're talking about like a shoe, like, and, and obviously not creating like a brand new shoe, but like, let's say a different a certain type of collab or a new type of design, or just like a broader creative project to that going out into the world. Like, I mean, I guess like, what are some of the steps involved in making that happen? There's a normal process that Nike has that most designers on the creative end uh, start with. It's called a brief. It's normally some type of documentation or some some form of documentation that explains to the consumers and the opportunity, silhouette, et cetera, that's both footwear and apparel. I was fortunate enough to never really need a brief. In the in the better chunk of my career, I started the ideas. It's either me or and or my team that would start to start the ideas. We never started with like uh this formal process. Again, this was more towards the brand Jordan special projects that we, we just worked as a team. We thought, hey, this is a good opportunity. And we just went after it. Um, respecting the process at the same time, we also didn't follow the process. And that was part of the kind of charm of, of the brand Jordan special projects group is that we bent the rules, we're disruptors, but magic came out of it. Which was which was amazing at the time, and and when you when you say like special projects for Jordan, right? Like was there when I think about special projects, like it's not like 
you have to set a goal of like hitting a certain number of sales, right? Or is not like focused on amount of stuff out? Like are the projects centered around mark like marketing goals or just generally elevating the brand? Like how how does that work exactly? I'll say 40% of it was elevating silhouettes, whether it's footwear and apparel or opportunities that were needed to elevate those particular items and or the brand at the time. I usually centered around a moment, product, and an opportunity. So again, going back to like an all-star or fashion week, we combined that with a product that needed some highlighting on some highlight or some an opportunity to to shine. So we did everything from a, a Chris Paul signature shoe to uh, random runners or something that wasn't so obvious. That was the fun part. Because part and then the other part of it was just kind of like looking at the retro line, seeing what opportunities were there to highlight an AJ four, AJ one. I really was trying to highlight the ones that really didn't need a lot of help, you know, because in in my position, what you were doing for a big chunk of your job was kind of brushing off these gold bars, dusting off these gold bars that were just sitting there, kind of brushing them off, positioning them in a new way for the consumer to enjoy. But I loved the off models, team jump mans, sevens, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20s. Those are fun because those are a challenge. When you try to get a partner to do something or you try to figure out a new way to veneer it, those are those were fun to me. Challenging. Well, so I guess like if you think about all your time spent at Nike, particularly on the Jordan brand, you know, again, like you mentioned Nike is kind of like this, this, this mecca, right? From at least your perspective and I know a lot of people, obviously, in the design creative fields, now that you've actually, you know, spent a lot of your career there and know how it works internally, would you say, what kind of like surprised you about Nike once you worked there? And then also, is there like a special sauce in the sense that there's something about the culture, the people, the, I don't know, decisions that are made in a business perspective that keep that brand strong? Or maybe maybe it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I would say there's this kind of like special sauce there. You're tucked away in the, the suburbs of Portland in this kind of magical forest amongst trees in Beaverton, Oregon. I live here now. Operationally, I think they operate, you know, there's an ex, there's an excellence to the way they operate. And that's different from these kind of smaller New York brands where you kind of roll up your sleeve and you kind of do, kind of do everything. I took that energy and applied it to Nike where <clears throat> New York sense of urgency never went away. That work ethic didn't go away. Um, so I just multiply that times Nike's ability to operate, having people to do a multitude of things to help your ideas get off the ground. Their their ability to um, bring ideas to life, good or bad, and the ability to have fun and experiment. All these, you kind of multiply these and it just adds to this kind of special brew of 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 creativity and, and execution, you know? Is, is there anything that you'd say, like, you noticed changed in, like, the company's, I guess, like, DNA over your time there? Because also, you know, I mean, 
right now, whether or not it's like a temporary thing or just kind of like the press picky on it, feels like Nike's in a situation where people are really quick to point out like, oh, Nike's getting challenged a lot by these like younger brands. And, you know, maybe like a year or two ago, the story was that like Adidas is in like a really bad position, you know, because of the easy situation. But now it feels like at least in the last couple of months, like a lot of the press, whether it's right or wrong, is saying like, oh, is Nike in trouble? And most people I talk to, no one thinks that's like a major thing. It's more like potentially yes in the short term. But I guess one, is there anything you saw change in the company from your time there? And then two, if we take a look at today, what's your assessment of like, I don't know how well Nike is doing? So I said in two parts, I think the first part from from when I left to what it is now, I think there's a shift to being uh, a more, very more commercial brand. I'll just say that. And in being a commercial brand, you kind of lose the fun, experimental aspect of the brand. And I think that's just generally what's lost along just kind of missing some trends, which everyone does. Um, and I could speak on behalf of these trend, you know, trend right brands that are super hot right now. But from one from one I was at the brand to where it is now, yeah, it's it's lost to us insiders some brand presence and some uh um I guess wearability or post-sale relevance, um, aftermarket relevance. It's it's lost its kind of shelf appeal and its buzzworthiness, specifically brand Jordan, which, you know, I always have these conversations with my friends. It's like, it's become too commercial. To me, brand Jordan was never a brand that needed a chase, was never a part of Nike that should have been a brand that chased revenue because in doing so, it's lost its kind of brand value. And all this, and I talk talk about this with Frank Cook, like Brand Jordan is a luxury brand. It is a, it's priced higher. It means an Air Jordan at the time when I was working there. An Air Jordan 1 meant as much as a luxury house sneaker. It meant just as much, despite you paying less for a luxury house sneaker, it meant just as much if you walked into a club or wherever could be walking an Air Jordan 1, and this is, again, 10 years ago, versus a Vuitton or a luxury house shoe, and it meant just as much. as that social equity, social value. Fast forward to now, the supply and demand has shifted because it's become a much more commercial brand. So the heart of the brand, this kind of social value, has withered away. It's lost a bit, unfortunately. Um, I think that's very obvious, and that's due to just too many models, et cetera. You know, nothing that's um, it's super obvious. And you're probably going to see that for the next year or so. You can multiply that times, again, the lack of innovation, lack of newness. There is newness. Um, I see it. It's just not as wearable as you'd like. You know, there's, I guess, the vapor flies and some of the amazing running shoes. The beauty of some of the running shoes that Nike did years ago is that you could wear them on and off the field. These running shoes, you really, you can't, you can't really. They're so techie forward, which is fine. But in Nike, they just never multiply performance times style. They did, but it was only like ten or five percent. You know, I think tech over outweighed style. 
Um, and that style equals shape, portion, color material. Um, second half of that answer, you look at these kind of trend right brands, which I love and I wear endlessly. All of last year, I wore ASICs and New Balance 1080s and 990s, V3s. I think coming out of the pandemic, those brands mattered most in terms of wearability, comfort, style. And they've outlasted the kind of pandemic to where they are super brands of relevance. And they've kind of rewriting the blueprint, specifically New Balance. And I think everyone's trying to copy and paste what New Balance is doing. Uh, Some of these brands that are known for running, retro-running, if they want to evolve in the next three to five years, they need to expand their offering into other sports. So it'll be exciting to see as they compete into this Nike space, what they're going to do in the next three to five years. I, I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, ASICs and New Balances, brands you admire, and obviously, like, objectively, they've become pretty successful or grown in popularity, and you see that on the resale market, you see that just in, in general. What do you, like, attribute that to? Do you think they made some, like, good decisions at, like, a marketing level, a product level? Uh, is it certain, I know, executives that made decisions there... Because I'm thinking to myself, like, one, it'd be good to dissect that. Like, what did they do right? And also, like, you know, if that's a playbook or if it's luck, could someone who's, let's say, an executive at another brand that's not doing as well as New Balance, like, learn from that, you know? Yeah, I think think timing is everything in this industry. And, of course, having the right people involved. Um, New Balance's timing was, was, was so good in terms of, them having always the right people involved. I think Joe Grandin there uh, really catapulted and had the vision to bring partners in and use the right models to push that brand into a very relevant space. So I think, you know, corporate leadership times, trusting people like Joe to enable them to take some risks. They took risks in bringing in the Joe Fresh Goods and and Salehi at the time, they're massive entities now, and kind of putting them uh, on their backs and kind of riding the wave with them. And it paid off tremendously. I think there's still opportunity with New Balance, other silhouettes of other different sports, apparel, and same goes with A6. Same with Hoka. Hoka, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what they do in terms of how they expand their offering, offerings in terms of Sponsorship, youth culture, different sports, and on, you know, all brands that I've worn in the last two years. I'm interested to get your take on, like, let's take Reebok, for example, right? Like, I think when it comes to particularly like the sports connection there, uh, you know, they've rehired or hired Shaq and Allen Iverson trying to sign more uh, basketball players, right? Uh, And obviously, Reebok has kind of like a history where obviously in the 90s is doing super well versus, let's say, the past 10 years. When you think about that strategy, do, do you think that makes sense? Do you think that's something that can be replicated by other brands? Because Reebok's kind of unique, right? Like they do have that long-standing connection with Shaq and Allen Iverson. Not every brand can just do that. It, it, it feels like it's getting more competitive, particularly when we're coming, think when we're talking about like basketball, right? Like Skechers and Embiid, right? Like Under Armour and, and Steph Curry. And we'll talk about later, you know, like Leaning and Jimmy Butler and Anta and Clay, right? So it, it feels to me that this playing field, if you will, like competition, 
is getting tougher, which probably was maybe not the case when you were at Nike like 10 years ago, right? Uh, oh, what's your oh, take yeah. on how that's happening? Well, I'll speak on behalf of like Reebok first. I think there's always going to be an opportunity for Reebok, especially now with Shaq and Iverson. And, and it comes down to, you know, a marketing exercise on how they evolve their brand presence today. Because if we got a certain amount of right models, and you could also include Puma in that conversation, they have the right partnerships, give or take. It's just how they evolve into, I think they over-indexed a little bit. This is just me. On the lifestyle collaboration piece, while not innovating, I think what Nike is going through, Reebok has gone through, has been going through in the last decade. And lack of newness, and fresh models to complement the amazing work they're doing on the lifestyle, um, in a lifestyle collaboration piece. Stuff they did with Pyre Moss and all that was groundbreaking. They just didn't do enough newness from a runner's perspective. I think they had a huge opportunity with aerobics and their history of the aerobics and the female consumer. It just never stuck. And it's very hard for a big brand to make sure the pendulum doesn't swing too far either way because you could get really comfortable riding a wave and and not look behind you or ahead of you to see uh, other opportunities. Speak on Anta, Li Ning, Jimmy Butler, and, th and that world, and even sketches what I love. I love it all. I love seeing these brands take swings because, again, Eight, 10 years ago, these brands were scared to take swings. Now they're taking swings. They're Anta with Kyrie. If, if they play their cards right and they utilize resources, trusted people, get their U.S. distribution right, get the right people involved in the offices, trust those people, and take some risks and have some fun, sounds kind of esoteric, and but there's a blueprint that you could apply to with these brands. You slowly could sign and see them doing that can make them a brand that makes an impact um, for the foreseeable future. They just got to commit and they got to be consistent. And what do you think has made this sort of, they're not all necessarily new brands. I mean, you mentioned, I just thinking about Jokic and 361 degrees, if that's how you say it. What what changed between now and let's say seven years ago that have compelled these companies to take a swing? Is it just Nike fatigue? Maybe is it like they have gotten more funding and it started just like started growing? And I don't know if that's like an easy answer there, but just curious, like why are these brands like taking these big swings now and are able to do things like get like Jokic when seven years ago that seemed like a crazy idea? I just think it came down to the athlete. Uh, wanting opportunities to build their brand, and and with any kind of you know entity that has multiple big athletes or whatever entertainers, you can't support every one of them, right? You just can't. I think you know the point of entry for a lot of these young athletes to come into a brand of Nike is amazing, but when you see a Jokic grow that big and someone like Nike not having the resources or the funding to build a brand around him. Of course, you can't blame them to look otherwise. And it gives a brand like these these Chinese brands an opportunity to relook at their scope um, and react to these 
athletes that want a brand around them. And so Anton Curry, they built a complete team around him. And that's what these ultimately these superstars want. They want a team around them to grow their brand. And that's what these China brands saw the opportunity and they just shifted. And we'll see what it we'll see, we'll see what how it goes. Uh I'm I'm really curious to know about so you know, you obviously at Nike for many years, then you moved on. I know you got involved with like a lot of different like companies and what you're doing now, but can you kind of walk me through like what did you immediately do after Nike and what were you just looking for new opportunities as well? Because I'm sure again, it's a great place to be, like but any place you stay at for a long time. I'm sure you could always look for other opportunities, especially if you've been there for like so many years. What what happened after you left Nike and also like how did that come about? Quickly opened up my studio and quickly short thereafter. Uh, Travis Scott picked me up as kind of like this product lead, product manager, design assistant, and we clicked. We got we got we got off the ground running. We started on his signature shoe that you saw just launched, and, and upcoming tours, the Audemars Piguet product. So, he used to say it was just seamless. It just I just it fell in my lap, just because of the relationships that I established and Nike were were, were coming into fruition shortly thereafter. And that I'm very fortunate to have had that opportunity to for for these brands to uh call me and or respond to my calls. Jimmy Butler, who I worked with at Brand Jordan, he was gracious enough for me to bring me on to help him out with his first two signature models that you see him wearing the two right now. And we're working on the three. So that and then you know Beyonce, again that was from relationship coming out of Nike. Ex Nike people working at Parkwood, bringing me on as their footwork consultant. And that kind of idea just cascaded and it brought me to realizing that, hey, this is great, but I need to, I would love to do something on my own. Became partners with two other people and started Volley Club LA. Had three, 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 four launches and we're working on another one as we speak. Um, And then it just, it just, it just cascades into other things and, me having a dream of having my own footwear model out there one day as well. That's amazing. Uh, I You've worked with so many interesting people. And, you know, you mentioned, like, let's just take, for example, Travis Scott versus Beyonce versus Jimmy Butler. For my, like, assessment, right? Like, Travis Scott seems exceptional in his sneaker success. You know, he's not the only person in the world that's tried to launch his own sneaker brand, but he's kind of arguably been more successful than almost anyone, putting aside, let's say, Kanye and Virgil, Beyonce, Ivy Park, like I think it's it, from from what I've read. There's been some challenges, and Adidas has maybe not had as much success there as they would have liked. Uh, Jimmy Butler, I, I'm a big fan of him. I'm not I'm not as deeply in, in like aware of like how like let's say his leaning shoe is doing, but maybe like taking those like one by one, right? Like wh- Travis Scott, for example, is it just that he has like let's say an exceptional design sense? around sneakers and like culture that most people don't have? Is it something else that, I, I guess, try to, again, trying to like reverse engineer or understand? Because when you think about it, it really is exceptional, like what he's done, right? Like not just the last shoot, but pretty much most of them in terms of how desirable they are. And, you know, it's hard to like, let's say, quantify the artistic beauty of them. You know, it's all subjective, but from at least a, commercial perspective and respect and demand, he's like really like hit it out of the park and and it just seems so special to me. I'm just like wondering, 
why why is that? What about him? Is he just exceptional in footwear on top of obviously his music career and everything? I think he has a special thing. One plus one equals three. I use a lot in terms of one him and being having his and developing his own creative language, his design language, which is very hard to do. I think him out of many independent entities, entertainers, athletes has, has been able to create this very authentic point of view, very authentic design language, creative language that is obvious. It's built around music, culture, youth. Again, that's very authentic. That connects with the majority of these, his consumer base. He multiplies that times. Him having a great sense of style, one of the stylish guys out there. And then two, the way he presents them. And then three, the way he presents himself online. He wears his stuff. Yeah, he wears his shoes. He wears sneakers. He buys sneakers, which authenticates him in that space. Let's take that away. Anything from my experience at be, with, with Parkwood and Beyonce. And others have said it, but Beyonce, never, you never saw her wear her sneakers. Her social presence was always very polished. And you just never got to see behind the scenes of her casually wearing her sneakers. Her behind the scenes working on her sneakers. You've seen Travis behind the scenes, front of the scenes, and everything in between. Um, so, so Travis just built the blueprint. And you see Jimmy wearing his shoes. You see Jimmy winning in his shoes. Um, there hasn't been ton behind the scenes. Actually, there was. He did a trip to China, and you got to see behind the curtain um, a bit on the creation process. But Jimmy's starting to kind of build his own creative language slowly but surely. But if you don't put all these components together, it's very hard to authenticate yourself in that space. Now, obviously, you've seen a lot of success to varying degrees, what's worked well, what's not worked well across, you know, a lot of apparel and footwear brands. What kind of lessons did you take with Volley Club, right? And of course, like, you know, people listening to this might not be able to visually see the aesthetic of Volley Club. Maybe you could explain that as well and and how, like, what was the inspiration for that? Tennis is, has become a big part of my, is a big part of my life now, and I've played it all my life. It was my second sport to basketball. It was just something I grew up with. Weirdly enough, coming out of Southern Illinois, where there's only four courts there, um, it was just something very passionate to me. And my two partners that are were, were good friends of mine came to me with this opportunity to help creative lead the, the, the brand. And it just felt so natural. The ideas come so natural. The opportunity came so natural. Creative language is coming so natural. So it was just a natural fit to seize the opportunity, be creative, have fun, no risk. Um, it's not our nine to five and just have fun with it. And that's when good stuff happens. That that kind of brings me to maybe some of your other inspirations, right? Like I know you mentioned earlier, obviously growing up in Illinois, it's maybe natural to be a Bulls fan, which maybe makes it natural to be a Jordan fan, which maybe makes it natural to be an Air Jordan fan. But, you know, not everybody who's a grows up a Bulls fan, becomes like obviously a sneaker designer. Do you remember like what it was when maybe you were a kid that allured you to sneakers? Was it like also a moment where, I don't know, like a, jo- like a Jordan ad you saw or maybe a game? And then do you remember like how that first became not just like a cool thing that you could wear, but a passion that maybe that eventually turned into a career? Yeah. So my dad had a ton of magazine subscriptions and one of them was Sports Illustrated. And this is, again, times watching MJ 
play on TV. But sport became a huge passion of mine growing up. Sports Illustrated collected all of them, specifically Michael Jordan covers. And this allure around watching MJ play on a grainy TV and trying to squint and see what, what shoes he has. A particular game stood, stu- stood out to me when he scored six, uh, uh, don't kill me if I'm wrong, 63 against Larry Bird in the, in the playoffs, divisional playoffs. Yeah, me and my sister were watching it and I just wanted to go play basketball after that. I was just so crazy to watch him play and do what he did. So it was, it was like MJ and Dominique and I was always MJ. So just the crazy passion that I had, natural passion that I had, watching him play, do these crazy things, seeing him in magazines, led me to starting to pay attention to his shoes, which led me to, me and my brothers would go to Foot Locker in the mall and they would have everything from Nike, Jordan, Pony, Saucony, this brand Lynx that I'm trying to chase down. Pony, Avia, all these crazy brands that just aren't around anymore, which gave me an appreciation for sneakers. It was started in, I want to say, first, second grade of me paying attention. Third grade, and then being fifth grade, where, all right, now I need to start wearing something fresh, which led me to uh, 88 White Cements, Foot Locker, $99.99. Asking my mom to buy them for me. I was so gassed on them, so geeked I didn't we're going to wear them outside. And I remember putting them on and going outside to maybe play basketball with my friends. And they wanted to step on my shoes. And I just, I just kicked it off. I passed on the fours, jumped on the fives, and the rest is history. So to see it come full circle is, is, is a kid's dream, whether you're a designer or not. To be able to work with MJ and him know you by your first name. It's wild. That, that is a dream come true in many ways. Now, I, I think back to like, um, you know, I, it seems that let's say in the 90s, this is just like maybe a subjective observation here. The sneaker market was a bit more like, let's say, young and, and innocent in the sense that when people think about sneakers now, per se, there's maybe a lot of connotation around like, oh, it's just, there's, there's a big chunk of it that is maybe people that are crazy resellers who are making sneaker bots and just don't really necessarily maybe have the love for it, but they're just trying to resell it and stuff. That that might be one way to look at it, that how things have changed, which of course reselling, you know, it's not like it didn't exist in the nice, 90s, but probably like a smaller scale. And of course now it's like an industry and everything. Obviously another element is just like social media, right? Like the idea of sneaker hype being a currency that comes through everything from Instagram and NBA players walking in the, the hallways to companies like like Yeezy Mafia, you know, making like events out of like launching sneakers. And and even just like what we mentioned earlier, like the the diversification where there are new brands that didn't even exist 20, 30 years ago, or, or at least now are in the conversation and they probably weren't in 1997, 98. I mean, there's so many different things that have changed. And we could probably talk about each of those topics for like a long time. But what out of any topic in the sneaker world signifies to you the best, like how things are different than how they were maybe when you were a kid. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. It's the resale aspect to it. Um, I never thought it would have an impact on the entire industry like it is now. The resale market, um, it, it is 
crazy because, you know, we all, I remember just hearing about Flight Club and what it does and how cool they were. Oh, look at, we just, we did, we, the shoe sold out and it's reselling for this much money. To what it is now, to what it, it dictates uh, a good launch or not. Um, yeah, there was a close circle of us, me, Frankie, Jeff, that we paid attention, like, whether it was a good launch or not, we'd look at it like, hey, man, it's clipping at 1500 it's 2000 Um Very innocently, we paid attention. Um, that's probably the biggest standout to where now it, it, it is just affects the value of a shoe. Because there's some great shoes that are being designed and being sold. And this kind of brick culture is just not healthy overall. Again, this is we're just talking about the ten percent because again, me growing up in the Midwest, or a kid growing up in the Midwest right now doesn't really necessarily care super about the resale market. You know, he just wants to wear something that's cool. Those kids, hopefully, are keeping the lights on for for brands like Brand Jordan. You know, it's just us insider nerds that really care, pay attention to these resale versus sellout versus brick culture that to me is not super healthy for 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 these brands long term well you know having worked at actually more than one of the major sneaker brands what what's to me the like the, the relationship a nike would have with the resale market seems like complicated in the sense that resale itself and hype collabs help drive attention to Nike. And you could apply this to any company. Uh, it helps drive attention to Nike. So maybe they're not going to necessarily make hundreds of millions of dollars off a of Travis Scott shoe, but that exposure helps people think about Nike, maybe want to buy some Air Force Ones or whatever, run Nike running shoes. At the same time, they probably feel like they're not getting a slice of the action that a StockX might be getting. And obviously you have a whole sort of other angle of Nike being <laughs> suing StockX. And I think about you know, people getting in trouble for like backdooring or some of the recent scandals or even like people like, was it the the son of one of those Nike executives? He was like a big reseller and he was using some for, for access. Uh, so it, to me, there's like pros and cons. And if you were to look at like, let's say all Nike stories for 2023, it's a mixture of like, we aren't fans of reselling. We don't like it versus also we don't, want to shut it down per se, because it does help. It, it seems like a complicated relationship to me. I mean, considering your experience, like, you know, directly working at, and obviously Jordan and Nike, how would you describe that relationship or that, that perspective on what resale is for better or worse for the market? I can only speak on, you know, what, what I was challenged with at the time, which, which was, again, minimal at the time. We, we and Frank wanted to, wanted to be a bigger part of how we how we approached product uh, was the resale kind of market. We, whenever we would bring it up, again, this is probably ten years ago. Now, no, probably eight years ago. Uh, executives weren't really paying too much attention to it. I think it's more of a conversation now, just because of how much the resale market has dominated conversations in terms of supply and demand and brand heat, et cetera. You can't over-index on it. You have to address it. I think it's our jobs as footwear professionals 
to address it somehow. I wanted to do a launch. Me and Frank were talking about to launch specifically on StockX. They would approach us. That would be cool to just address it, be a partner of it, and and kind of go from there. But who knows what they're doing now? I a lot of other topics I, I kind of want to bring up. I know we don't have all the time in the world. I'd, I'd say out of everything like happening right now in the world of sneakers, like whether it's new brands you're excited about or trends or just stuff that's on your mind, what are the kind of things you're paying attention to the most these days when it comes, let's say, whether it's like a, a trend or a topic or, or even like a, a hot brand that you find really interesting or topics on your head? I think the gir- girls, women's sneaker business, specifically like teen to 40, I think is highly underserved. I think men's cool guy sneakers, unless you're Travis or Kanye, I think that world is, it's a bottle, it's bottlenecking. Collab world is bottlenecking. There's just nothing to me that I could think of that would excite me. And again, it's coming from me doing decades of it now. So I'm, I'm shifting my attention to where I think there's just a highly underserved consumer and the female consumer, specifically teens to, again, 40-year-olds, kind of like Samba Girl, that these brands aren't, have tried to address and then aren't addressing to this day. Um, and then if anybody wants to talk, I have an idea. But I think that world I'm paying attention to, I've always paid attention to female consumers, even in brand Jordan days, I always thought they were underserved and I would always push everyone from Virgil to whoever. We got to do women's, we got to do women's. Hide underserved, I'm always paying attention. Let's see what happens. Is it, do you think these female consumers are underserved by footwear companies because they're like male dominated in terms of who's at these companies or the designers? Is it just something that was a blind spot for whatever reason? Is it something where, you know, as we think about, I don't know, more more business or political or social discourse around women from a business perspective, social perspective, it's just becoming more obvious now? Or is there like, I don't know, something you can attribute to the fact that they were underserved? Because to me, it sounds like obviously it's, a, it's a, they're a major consumer, right? So it, I, I would imagine that, you know, Nike women's is a, as big or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how these it's structured, but just curious to know, maybe it's just there's not enough women in, in the executive positions at a place like Nike. I think there is now. And I think there's plenty of experts there, whether they hear them or not. I think their just approach has always just been off, whether it's design or this proportion whether it's being too tied to a sport or not. I think uh, it's just a space where the conventional process of building shoes is not fitting for these big brands to address necessarily. I think you'll get one out of five sneakers that hit and the rest of those four are just dogs. Um, I think it's a tough space to hit, but if you hit, it's massive. I think it's massive, i.e. the Samba. That is just a massive gargantuan of a business for this girl. So yeah, it's everything that you d- you said, probably a little bit of leadership, not trusting the right people, bad timing, bad design. It's all in there. Yeah. Are there any trends that like maybe surprise you? Like I, I think one thing that comes to mind for me, well, okay, I guess two things. One, like on my like bingo card for like the future of sneakers, one thing I didn't expect, but I am seeing now is the the number of Chinese brands, for example. I remember I I think I told you this when we first met, like I remember buying leaning shoes when I was like on a holiday in China with my parents, like when I was like 10 years old or something, 10, 13, whatever. 
And now there's so many of these brands that seem that they're going from strength to strength. That's one thing that kind of surprised me. And maybe that's something that's going to keep going. The second is, and, and I don't know if this is like a temporary thing or if it's a long-term thing, but when I look at, let's say, what StockX and Goat are talking about, and also this is just like probably a agreed upon trend, is the growth of things like Crocs and Uggs, which I guess I don't know if there's like, those are like non-sneakers, but they're becoming like as hype, arguably. So that, and, and, and the mischief boot, which I, I wouldn't put that in the same category as Uggs and Crocs, but that the sort of hype coming from non-traditional silhouettes, or I don't know if you even call them sneakers. Those are two things, like the Chinese brands, and, and that has, has surprised me, I'd say, in the last like year. It is that I wouldn't have expected. Are there, I guess maybe if you want to comment on those two, but also are there other things that you're like, damn, I did not expect that to be the case the last few years, what I've seen in terms of it's gotten popular. I think the non-sneaker world is growing. Uh, a lot more kids, especially maybe just like the top 5% of Wearing loafers, wearing Doc Martens, wearing boots. They're wearing mischief, big red boots. I think there's been brand fatigue with a growing population of sneaker buyers. To now, they just want to maybe dress up or try different shoes that have been sitting in their closet. Put on different looks that these sneaker brands aren't addressing, and or again, they're just a little bit of fatigue. Seeing Timberland make another wave. Um, I love it. I love the diversity. You just saw, was it Undercover and New Balance do a loafer? Yeah, I think it's all great and healthy for the diversification of what kids wear outside of sneakers. I love it. Totally, totally agree. I think it's an exciting time for the industry. I'm going to close with the same like last two questions I asked people. The first being, you know, where can people find you on websites, social media, et cetera? And the second final question being like, what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? You can find me on Instagram. I don't have any posts. I do some cellular stories on Gmo underscore Wong. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm a little bit on Twitter. I like to talk smack on Twitter, especially within, especially around sneakers. Um, if I was to leave anyone specifically, you know, who's trying to kind of be in the creative Space is just don't give up, man. It's it's tough out there. Love my path, wouldn't change anything. And I tell that to any kid to be comfortable sleeping on your friend's couch and not just go straight to Adidas Nike. Explore the world, sleep on couches, be uncomfortable, and don't take the first thing that comes to you. Fantastic message. Thank you so much, Shimo. Especially while you're young. Yeah. Completely agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.